I wrote this about a month, six weeks ago. I can't remember how long ago, and I felt like I was supposed to begin tonight. And uh, if I preach this tonight and I made a mistake, if you'll hang on, I'll go get one that I'm supposed to preach, and I'll preach that one afterwards, all right? Moses, it's called Moses, a man on a mission, Exodus 17, 8 through 13. The Bible says, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. And so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So kind of as an introduction, if you're not quite sure what's going on, the Israelites have been delivered from centuries of captivity in Egypt. God was leading them through the wilderness, but he wasn't going to let them stay in the wilderness. The goal was to get them to the land that God had promised Abraham that his descendants would possess. Genesis 17, 7 through 8, he says, I will establish my covenant between me, he's talking to Abraham, and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Moses, many centuries later, was the person that God had anointed to lead them out and was the one that God was doing his incredible works through. In this text, we find that the enemies of God's people attacked the Israelites in an attempt to keep them from their destiny. And that's what the devil does. His whole purpose is not just to get you to go to hell. I'm sure he would love that. But if he can keep you from fulfilling your destiny, he's good with that too. See, there are a lot of Christians that are in church that are just waiting to go to heaven, but they're not doing anything about their destiny. We want you to go to heaven. But God's desire for you is not just that you go to heaven. God's desire for you is that you fulfill the purpose he created you for. Amen? And if you will fulfill his purpose in your life, I promise you, heaven, you'll get there. So anyway, uh, there are a few key points that we want to look at that can also help us on our journey to fulfilling our destiny in and with God. So the first thing we want to look at is we want to look at the mission. In Exodus 3, 7 through 8, as I said, God spoke to Moses. And he said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, in examining any text, it's always important to keep the overall context in mind. That's why I like Bibles that are written in a paragraph type of format because it helps you to grasp the idea that I'm not just looking at a verse like a fortune cookie, I'm looking at a context. So the broader context in this passage of what is taking place here is that of the mission 
that Moses was given to bring to fruition in the lives of God's people. The present dilemma was they were being attacked by an enemy, an enemy by the name of Amalek. So they had to defeat Amalek. The defeat of Amalek was not the overall mission. The overall mission was to bring the people to the land of promise or the land of Canaan. The key spiritual principle that we want to highlight is the enemy's ultimate purpose is to keep the people from fulfilling their God-given destiny. And John 10 and 10 says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul says, We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So the Amalekites were a different manifestation of a singular entity who was bent on thwarting God's people. If he couldn't keep them in captivity, then he would keep them from moving into their destiny. Thus we have this attack. And what we see next is Moses at the leading of God dealing with the attack the enemy had launched to keep them from fulfilling their mission. So the first point we looked at, I don't know if I mentioned it, was the mission. The second point we want to look at is the man. The man we're looking at is, of course, Moses. Exodus 17, 8 through 16, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So the next thing we want to see in this passage is the importance of the leadership of Moses in accomplishing the mission. This group of Amalekites had come to thwart the people from their destiny, and God gives Moses a plan to deal with them. The key for us to understand and to recognize is that Moses is the leader. He is the man that God has anointed and given authority to accomplish the mission of bringing the Israelites into their destiny. In Exodus 3, 1 through 5, and then we'll jump down to verse 10, it says, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. No, he said, here I am. Come. How do you know his voice didn't sound like that? Anyway, come, I will send you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't help myself. Y'all are so serious. Anyway, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So what we see here is Moses is God called and God anointed to carry out the mission. Moses was the man that God had chosen to lift the staff. Moses' raising of the staff in his hands was the factor that determined the fate of Israel in the battle. Psalms 103 verse 7 says, He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The reason I bring that up is sometimes we are unfamiliar with God's ways, or if we begin to learn God's ways, we may not like God's ways, 
But it's not for us to question God's ways. It's for us to understand God's ways and then find ourselves somehow, place ourselves in a situation in, in how God does things where we can cooperate with God in the ways that he does things. It, again, while Moses kept his hands up, it facilitated a spiritual battle that was going on behind the scenes. The physical battle that was happening down in the valley was to be determined by the spiritual battle, and it was Moses' God-given authority and anointing that was pivotal to the outcome. Now, we'll get to why this is important in a minute, but I just want you to understand that they couldn't have won this battle without Moses. All right? Are we all in agreement with that? Numbers eleven seventeen. God said, I will take some of the spirit that is on you, Moses, and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you. Here we see that the anointing of God, the empowering presence of God to accomplish the mission of God, rested on the man of God, Moses, and when God wanted other people to be used, he took the spirit that was on Moses and put it on them. But what's interesting is that God worked through Moses. See, a lot of times we think it doesn't matter who I'm connected to. I'm anointed. I can do whatever I want. Now, we all have an anointing from God. We're all used by God. But it's also important to understand that who we come into alignment with will often determine what it is that we will be able to accomplish in life. We have to come into alignment to fulfill the assignment. Right? So, um, in Joshua 5, 13 through 6, 2, I know I'm kind of jumping around, but I'll try to bring it all together in a minute. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. It's not a question of, and this is a Rick Helguero translation, I'll read the regular translation in a minute. It's not whose side I'm on. The real question is whose side are you on? He said, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua, smart guy, just realized I'm in the company of the real commander. And he fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Here we see that the Lord was revealing to another anointed leader in the future of God's people, Joshua, the plan of God for the taking of this enemy stronghold. It's the anointed leader that God approaches and reveals his plans to. Now, 2 Kings 6, 15 through 18, it's another passage, and I said we'll bring it all together in a minute. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city, the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike these people with blindness. And the Lord struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Now here we are made aware of the spiritual warfare taking place and the authority that the anointed prophet was given to wield in this confrontation. Now, with that in mind, getting back to our text, it was notable that when Moses grew tired, no one took the staff from him to lift it up in his stead. In a very real sense, it wasn't just about the staff, but about the man that God had chosen to wield the staff. The Israelites respected the leadership of Moses and God's anointing on his life. And so in keeping with that, if Moses needed help, the goal was not to replace Moses, but to facilitate God's moving through Moses. In today's church culture, we often assume that if someone can't handle the job, we'll just get someone else who can. We don't always grasp that God doesn't anoint the task and then just get someone to step into it. God anoints people for the task. The anointing of God rests on people. The anointing of God in this particular instance was on Moses. And thus to facilitate his leadership and the challenges that lay ahead in their journey to fulfilling their destiny, they needed to create some structure to facilitate Moses' anointed leadership. I hope, I hope you're getting where I'm going here. It's nothing personal. We're just studying a passage, that's all. But what we need to realize is that the anointing of God was on Moses. Moses is not young, right? He's old. He's 80 years old. But God's keeping him, and the presence of God is on his life. But he's up there, and even a young man holding up a staff for a length of time is going to get tired, right? So we live in a culture that doesn't necessarily respect the elderly. We live in a youth-oriented culture. So if you have young men and see, that see Moses, the leader, struggling... Well, you know, in a lion-type scenario, the younger, stronger lion will pounce on the older lion and step in his place and become the next anointed leader. But in the ways of God, that's not how things function. In the ways of God, God puts his hand on people, and it's our privilege to come around and to find ways to help people to facilitate what God is doing in their life. And so getting to a place where they're going to have to create a structure, and that's what we see happening here, and we'll look at this next week if the Lord allows me. There's another part two to this, is that there is a structure, and that's the next thing that we're going to look at, that is now being developed to facilitate what God is doing in the Israelites, not without Moses, but through Moses. Are you hearing what I'm saying? This means yes. This means no. This means <laughs> diabetic coma. Okay. 
Exodus 17, 9 through 12. Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek, and tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. By the way, let me just ask you a question before I finish this. If Moses was not on the top of the mountain holding up his staff, even though Joshua went out with the army, would he have won the battle? No, the Bible? <laughs> it's very simple. Moses holds up the staff, the Israelites start winning. Moses lowers the staff, the Israelites start losing. So if they would have gone out to battle without Moses doing his part, would they have won the battle? No. So who was the critical piece in this whole scenario? Moses. And they grasped that. They saw that. They saw that when Moses holds up the staff, we win. When Moses lowers the staff, we lose. But Moses' hands grew weary. And so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. Not the staff. They held up his hands. One on one side, the other on the other side. And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Now here's, here's where we want to get into a little bit more in depth. The name Rephidim means to spread out or to support. To spread or to support. It's interesting to me that it's here as the Israelites are being attacked by the Amalekites that we see some organization taking place to deal with the challenges. First, we see that Joshua is given responsibility for the physical battle while Moses takes responsibility for the spiritual battle. As we've already seen biblically, the spiritual battle is always the most important as the world we live in flows from the unseen realm to the seen realm and is impacted by it. Remember, Elijah, don't worry, there's more with us than there are with them. Open his eyes. The spiritual realm always has influence over the natural realm. Okay? More influence, I should say. Second, we see some more organization coming out on Moses' side. We can see that he now had some people to assist him in his responsibilities. Aaron and Hur were his assistants. Now that Joshua, who was his previous assistant, and will continue to be his assistant, by the way, had other responsibilities, he had to go and take the Israelites out to the army. So now he's got two more assistants, Aaron and Hur, who went with him. And it's a good thing they went with him because Moses got tired and they began to organize a way for him to do what he was anointed to do, but to do it from a place of rest. They found a place uh, or a rock for him to sit on. And then they came alongside and helped him to keep his hands raised up to fulfill his calling and responsibilities. In short, what we're talking about here is structure. The camp was now having to become more organized or structured in such a way to facilitate Moses in fulfilling the mission that he had been sent to do. Now, it's really not about Moses, it's about the mission. 
But God, uh, the anointing of God was on Moses to fulfill the mission, so Moses was critical to fulfill the mission. Am I making sense to you? What is key for us to see is the organization was brought about to serve a person who was sent on a mission to further the people in their destiny. Today, we seem to lose the purpose of organization. What we often do is we make the structure the primary purpose instead of the mission. In doing so, we often find ourselves seeking a person to support the structure instead of the structure being the needed support for the God-anointed person sent to fulfill the mission. In a way, we might say that the structure or the organization itself has become the mission and the goal is somehow to perpetuate the organization. It would be akin to making the scaffolding needed to paint the Sistine Chapel the central focus instead of the art it was helping to create by supporting the artist who was painting it. We could say this another way using a metaphor that Jesus gave us, Matthew 9, 17. Neither is new wine put into old wine stins, in wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins and both are preserved. There's actually a parallel passage that says, but no one who has tasted the old wants the new. We must recognize that the most important thing in this teaching that Jesus was giving was not the wine skin. The most important thing that Jesus wanted us to focus on, the central focus, was the wine. If we brought this metaphor over to what we've been learning from today, we might say that for some in today's church culture, it seems that the wineskin that was created to hold the wine has now become more important than the wine it was intended to hold. Is that a little bit heavy for you guys? All right. So what we see in our text today is that God, through the Israelites, provided a support system to support, at this time, the man that was leading was Moses. Moses was the man that God had anointed to accomplish the mission of bringing the people in through their divine destiny. When the Israelites grasped the spiritual dynamic, they organized and created some structure to facilitate his mission, which was to help them to accomplish their destiny. Consequently, they saw the power of God release in their quest towards their destiny in God. So, in a nutshell, what we learn is that the organization they created was never intended to be the mission, but was created to facilitate the mission. The organization was not the invariable. invariable. It's the mission that is key, and the organization is there to serve the mission. Now, why is this important? Because we're growing. And there's new wine being poured out in our midst. And what we need to understand is that we're going to have to change some of the ways things have been done in the past. 
Well, we've never done it that way before. If that's the mindset, then you've made the wineskin more important than the wine. We can't do things the way we've always done and expect to get something new. We have to be able to flow with the new that God has done. And in order for that to happen, there has to be flexibility in the way that we approach things. And so I believe that what God wants to do is he is going to begin to reveal in an even greater way and it's going to stretch us. But it's not about just having church the way it's always been because it's really not about the church. It's about the kingdom of God. The church is God's instrument. Don't get me wrong. The church is his bride. He loves the church. It's, it's the church is his, is, 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 his, 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 who he died for. But the church is not just to sit around and enjoy the beauties and the one that we'll, we'll do that when we get to heaven. The church was created to accomplish the mission. And what is the mission? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth, in my life, as it is in heaven. And so in order for the mission to be accomplished, you will begin to see that there has to be changes in the way things are done. I guess what I'm trying to prepare you for is change is coming. Can you say that with me? Change is coming. <laughs> now say it like you're okay with it. Change is coming. Somewhere you're like, <laughs> change. Huh? It's already here. Yeah, it is already here. But it's going to begin to unfold even more. And so we've got to ask ourselves, see, we're not changing for the purpose of change. We're, we're becoming flexible to what God is doing. And sometimes God will ask us to do things prior to what he's going to do. Well, when God does it, then I'll change. No, God actually says, when you change, then I'll do it. Remember Abraham? Did you know his name was not always Abraham? You know what his name was? His name was Ferdinand. No, just kidding. I'm just making sure you all are paying attention. And he talked like this. No, his name was Abe. Abram. Abram means exalted father. Now God had made Abraham, Abram a promise. He said, you're going to have a child. And he said, okay. So he waited 10 years, 12 years. I can't remember. 14 years, I think it was. And all of a sudden, Sarah said, well, it ain't coming through me. So am I going to come through somebody else? Uh, go have a child with my maidservant. And God said, no. It's not going to come through her. It's going to come through Sarah. And so 24 years later, God waited until Abraham's body. See, he had been able to have a child before. But the Bible says now his body was as good as dead. And it said Sarah's womb was as good as dead. And then God appears to him and he says, this time next year, you're going to have a child. But I need you to do something first. You're going to change your name. You're going to be father of a multitude. Well, God, give me a child first. Let me have two or three, and then I'll change my name to father of a multitude. 
And God said, no, it's important that you change your name now to what I'm saying is going to happen in the future. And it's actually your willingness to change your name now that will facilitate that I want to do in your life. So what I'm saying is that in order sometimes to see what God's going to do, we have to do what he says before he does it. We, we oftentimes want to be like Thomas. Well, when I see it, then I'll do it. And God says, no, when you do it, then you're going to see it. And all I'm saying is that God is doing something new. We are already witnessing that. We like what he's doing, don't we? You see, it's not about the carpet. It's not about the chairs. We're grateful for that. We're so thankful for that, you know? But my hope is we get so many people through here that in a year we'll wear this carpet out. And we'll have to put new carpet in, right? Well, wait a minute. I just, I just etched my initials on my chair. And now you change the seating arrangement. I can't find my chair. In fact, you put my chair where I don't want it. I don't know what to do about it. Get over it. No more scratching initials, initials on a chair because you're going to get lots of people coming in that are going to sit in your chair. And whether they come back and sit in, your, in that chair again or not is going to be determined by how you react to them being there. You see, this building wasn't created for us. It is our house, yes, but it's first his house. And he's inviting guests in. And we get to steward those guests. And we're going to have to adapt, and we're going to have to change, and we're going to have to be flexible when those people start coming in, and they are going to start coming in. How are we going to react to them? Are we going to love them? Are we going to disciple them? Well, that's your job, Pastor. No, I hope you've learned from me right now. It's not just my job. It's our job. See, did you not see what happened with Moses? You'll see this even more next week. When he was trying to do it all by himself, he got tired. And so God was showing him, well, you're going to need some people to do this, and you're going to need some people to do this, and when you do what you're going to do, you're not going to be able to do that by yourself. You're going to need some people to help you. Discipleship is not a pastor thing. It's a church thing. Loving people is not a staff thing. It's a brother and sister thing. It's a people of God thing. We all are going to have the responsibility of discipling and pastoring and working and serving and doing. Well, I want to go to another church where I don't have to do any of that. We don't want you to go, but I'm telling you where it's happening. Like, well, I do want people to come in. I just don't want to have to do anything. That's what we're talking about. We're going to have to learn how to change. We've got to move from being spectators to participators. Every one of us will have something that God wants us to do. And the real person that's in charge is Him, is the Holy Spirit. Now, He does use me and, and the board and other people. He works through authority. He does that, right? And so it's learning how to work with how God is working to facilitate what He wants to do. 
and being a part of it when we all find like a body that needs the joint, it needs the elbow, it needs the wrist, it needs the thumb. When we all find our place and begin to function the way God designed us to function, then what you have is a viable living body that can fulfill its purpose. And when you fulfill your purpose, it's not only good for you, for us, it's good for the world. It's good for everyone because God has a place and a people that he can flow through to not only win spiritual battles, but to bring his healing, his wholeness, his spiritual dynamics into and through to be a blessing to the community that we have been placed in. Amen? Okay, so when they got into alignment with the mission and with the person anointed to carry out the mission, the blessings and the power of God were released. Not just in their life. It wasn't just Moses that experienced the victory. It wasn't just Joshua that experienced the victory. Who experienced the victory? All the people experienced the victory. And to be honest with you, I don't think that anybody was killed on the Israelite side in this battle. The enemy was wiped out. He was annihilated. And the people of God were victorious. Did you know in Christ we're victorious? I'm tired of losing to the devil. It's not God's plan. It's not God's purpose. God's desire is that the victory that he won at the cross of Calvary would be made evident through his body. So how does that happen? It happens as we begin to understand his ways, work with him, and flow with the way he wants to do things and become flexible in our walk with him to an extent where we don't just do church as usual, but we are actually becoming the church. Church is not a place where we go and we experience something that blesses us. Church is actually something that we are. It's a people that, that manifest and live out the life that he's destined us to live. I'm making sense to you. Psalms 133, 133. We'll stop here. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron. Who was Aaron? He was the anointed priest, the high priest. And where was the oil poured out? On his head. But then it ran down on the collar of his robes, and then God makes a, an analogy. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessings lie forevermore. Now you might think to yourself, well, wait a minute. Why is the dew falling up there and not over here? Well, what you don't realize is when the dew falls up there, it's going to pick up steam. And it's going to, I don't know how it works, but it become, it starts coming together. And when that water that falls on the mountain hits you, you have a stream, you have a river, you have an arroyo, you have, you have something more tangible than dew. So instead of fighting because you're not on the mountaintop, you say, thank you, Lord, that I'm near the mountain. And because that mountain is falling up, that water is falling up there, I'm going to get a greater blessing down here. Amen? 
And so we learn the ways of God. Oftentimes the people that are at the bottom of the mountain get the greater blessings than the one that are on the top of the mountain. It's just the way it works in the kingdom of God. Amen?